Welcome to Issues in Rural Crime and Society, our uh, podcast podcast at the Center for Rural Criminology, here with my co-host and co-director, Dr. Alistair Harkness. And today we're lucky to have a PhD student from West Virginia University, Daniel Stoneberg. Do you want to start off, Danielle, by just kind of letting us know a little bit about yourself generally, um, um, kind of a bit of insight into your research, and then we can just take it from there? Yeah, so hello. Thank you guys so much for um, inviting me here today. My name is Danielle Stoneberg, and I'm currently going to be a fourth-year PhD student in the sociology program at West Virginia University. Um, I came here in 2018, but prior to that, I was at the University of Central Oklahoma, where I received my bachelor's in psychology and my master's in crime and intelligence analysis. And while I was there, I worked with Dr. Rashi Shukla on methamphetamine research. Um, and that's kind of how I became um, involved with criminology and specifically rural criminology. And then from attending conferences, that's how I started to link up with um, Dr. Donnermeyer and Dr. DeCesaretti and Dr. Nolan. And then the latter two um, invited me to apply to West Virginia University for a PhD program. And so um, that's how I'm here now. Um, a lot of my research while I've been with them at West Virginia University has been centered around violence against women. Um, but my thesis and dissertation is going to be still focused on um, drugs in rural places. Right up Do you want so me to say anything more? <laughs> no, no. Oh, there we go. We got a, we got another guest. That's okay. The more the merrier. We're going to hear my dogs barking in the background uh, probably several times and possibly a baby crying. So it's okay. Adds to the authenticity <laughs> of our conversation. Um, yeah. So can you just tell us a little bit generally about the research that you plan to undertake? Maybe some of the key themes, but especially how that overlaps with rural criminology and the rural more generally? Yeah, so um, for my thesis, I am actually using data that Dr. Shukla had collected um, when she was uh, collecting data to write her book, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. And so when I was her um, research assistant, I was specifically reading the parts of the interviews only focused on desistance. And so um, for an entire year, I was really immersed in that data um, and ended up, you know, summarizing it for her, writing up a couple different things, and she ultimately ended up using parts of it for her book. But when I was reading these parts of the interviews, um, and then later whenever we would go on rural law enforcement visits and go to these different rural communities, I was really interested to learn how, um, like, resources available to them, they might have to drive hours to go and, you know, go to a treatment center, but almost all of these communities, you know, have a jail or have a prison nearby. And so it was like, we go ahead and we have things to go ahead and punish them, but we don't really have things to on the ground to go ahead and help them actually become productive um, members of society or even um, help them become sober or really just help them function. Um, and that's not to say, you know, I mean, obviously those of us who do rural research, like we know that that's not limited to just drug users. We know yeah. that resources in general are very difficult. And so for my thesis, I'm focusing on those interviews again, but looking for redemption narratives um, and 
kind of how the individuals um, believed that they were redeemable and what that really meant to them. Even though Dr. Shukla really didn't ask about redemption narratives, I've seen it come out in their um, in their interviews. And then for my thesis, because I am in a little bit by redemption and that concept and, and what a redemption narrative might mean. Yeah. And so a redemption narrative, um, I mean, especially in qualitative research can kind of mean a lot of things, but yeah. especially in the narratives that I'm reading, I'm really seeing it in the sense of, you know, someone being like, I have a partner who believes that I can become sober. And so, you know, they're making sure that I get to all of my AA meetings or, you know, I have kids and I know that I'm going to have to go to treatment or be incarcerated, but instead of my children going to state custody or the foster care system, as it's called here in America, like my family will go ahead and take the children while I'm incarcerated or while I'm away. So then I don't have to worry about then having to also fight the state to get them back. Um, So those are types of things that could be a redemption narrative. And are they formalized, Um, Danielle, are they formalized processes? So somebody is or is an individual taking it upon themselves to put in place arrangements to say look after the kids while they're uh, in custody so i think it could be both um in the instances i i mean i don't have the whole interviews and also like dr shukla didn't ask about you know necessarily those things um but i do think that you know it could be a, a mix of the two depending on what the circumstances were yeah but you're, p- you're p- picking up on one of those points that you made around access to justice and yeah. the the gross disparity between services and opportunities which would be located in inner city places or urbanised environments and those in the in the country. And it's even just things like accessing to, and we'll probably get on to policing because I've got a few questions for you about the about yeah. policing and the different contexts in America there. But even just accessing police, um, um, you know, being required by the court perhaps to go and present at the police, but then there's a long journey ahead and mm. there's access mm-hmm. to car and finances to fill it with petrol and, and so on and so forth. I think what's really interesting about all this too is that um, at least in the Canadian context, in certain American states, um, increasingly in the Australian context, I guess in probably in Western countries, you're seeing that shift at least, hopefully, uh, for the first time in a long time, away from a police-like mentality towards drugs to a public health uh, strategy and, and one that treats drug issues uh, as a public health issue as opposed to as a criminal justice issue. Not all the way there, of course, uh, still a lot to do. But I think that's really emphasized the inequality and differences between the urban and the rural. So as you see these types of opportunities pop up in urban spaces, safe injection sites and things like that, um, uh, their absence is kind of more starkly defined then in rural spaces where there isn't access to this. Um, and you brought up a good point there, Alistair, just in terms of distance. Like we went to um, um, a, a program through Fair Treatment here in Australia called The Long Walk to Treatment. And, and they had interviews on a variety of individuals that were seeking treatment for, for drug use. And um, one of them was from a rural space. And she spoke about how, you know, when, when, when she had instances of relapse or when she, you know, needed those, those uh, levels of support, um, they weren't there. They were not immediate. They weren't even, you know, within a, a, a hour or two, they were literally within a, you know, an eight hour drive into the inner city from where she was and public transportation uh, uh, was nil and um, this person couldn't afford a vehicle. And so really they were, they were just stuck on their own. Do you know what I mean? And so that narrative of kind of going into the city for treatment, coming back out very far away into, into your own environment again, and then just being kind of, 
left on your own uh, was really, really interesting and, 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 and emphasize those clear differences between the rural and the urban. Yeah, and so this might be um, skipping ahead just a little bit, but I, (laughs) well, um, you know, in my, in my elevator talk that I had given at the last meeting, I talked about state question 780 and 781 that had been implemented in Oklahoma. And the 781 part was the part of it that was supposed to take those monies that they had saved, you know, from going ahead and, um, and doing this. And, and it was actually supposed to be like fueling them back into treatment centers locally in all of the counties. Mm. Um, but I've since been told, so whenever we were doing our interviews, we actually did a portion of them before the legislation got voted on. We did a portion as it got voted yes. And then we actually did a portion after the fact of interviews. And so in all of us doing interviews, we didn't actually see the money getting pushed back yet because it was too early. It was, you know, not even a year after it had been implemented. But I've been told since then, since it has been a couple of years since 780 and 781 have been implemented, that we're not seeing that promise of monies back into the communities like we were sold whenever we voted, you know, yes on the legislation. And so that's a huge issue, especially whenever, you know, we're talking about rural communities were promised that this money saved was going to go back into their treatment centers. And now (laughs) they've received little, if any money to go ahead and revamp their treatment centers. Um, Just as as reinvestment is only going to work if there's the reinvestment part of it, (laughs) because then the justice get delivered, does it? Yeah, I mean, I know um, just me, this is like off the topics of drugs, but another example of like services, when I was a victim advocate um, at the hospital and I responded to sexual assault exams, I mean, I can remember one occasion when I had a rural rural law enforcement officer drive a victim in his car two hours just to go ahead and get a sexual assault exam. He stayed in his car, you know, the whole time while we did the exam. And then ended up driving her back, you know, back the two hours home and was taking her straight to go get a VPO. And so it's like what that was probably like a very rare occasion for a rural law enforcement officer to drive a victim two hours. Like how many times does a victim probably not get drove from a rural rural place into an urban place just to get a sexual assault exam because they don't have a place nearby to receive one? Yeah. There's some examples of even more remote places in Australia where it's not driving them, but flying them <laughs> because yeah, it's, yeah, um, same in Canada. it's yeah. a full day. I just wonder whether you'd just be able to paint a quick picture of the study area there in Oklahoma. What, what are some of the sort of the features of that rural space for people who might not be familiar with that area? Yeah, so I would say from living and also doing rural law enforcement um, visits in Oklahoma is a lot of the a lot of Oklahoma is flat land. Um, There are some major cities and more so like urban areas, but then, you know, um, I'm not sure if anyone's really familiar with the geography of Oklahoma or at least, you know, like seeing it on a map, it kind of has a panhandle. um, And then like the rest of it is, you know, kind of square. Um, and I mean, in the panhandle part, you can drive for hours in the panhandle and rarely even find a gas station. You know, the kind of ongoing joke is that you see more gravestones in the panhandle than you do see people in the panhandle. 
And, um, and so a lot of it, like I said, is flat land. I know in the Southern part of the state, that's kind of where you're going to see more wood wooded areas. And when we went to our rural law enforcement visits, that's actually where they started talking about like timber related thefts and like thefts related to forestry. Um, we do have agriculture. So, you know, that is also rural related crimes um, associated with that as well. And, and just in terms of drugs, are there particular types of uh, drugs that are more prominently used in, in those rural spot, parts of Oklahoma? Yeah, so um, meth is still a really big um, issue in Oklahoma. Um, also prescription um, pills are an issue. Yeah, um, our rural law enforcement whenever they would talk about prescription pills, they said that it was always difficult to get people um, to, you know, report on them because they kind of have this mentality of, well, they're being prescribed. So it's not really, you know, it's not really illegal or necessarily like a drug that people, um, you know, can't use. But the yeah. fact of the matter is, is unless it was prescribed to you, like, and there's that overlap there between yeah. medical use and recreational use. Uh, you know, when people start taking the drug for a medical purpose and then it becomes more of a kind of, um, I guess, recreational is not always the, the correct word when it turns into a um, uh, habit forming and problematic issue, but there's that overlap there. And so that helps kind of psychologically neutralize the use as well. And oh, why would I report on this? And yeah. 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 They did talk about, um, I mean, of course, there's still going to be, you know, influxes sometimes of you know heroin or cocaine or or different things like that but um methamphetamine is still one of the predominant drugs that they're having to combat in oklahoma right now yeah, well. just when you mentioned the, the the forested parts of oklahoma it brings to mind a a memory from quite a number of years ago but it's been back in 2009 and i traveled with a with a committee over to new zealand and we're looking at uh at ways of, uh, of sun smart, healthy eating in, in primary schools and secondary schools. And we visited a little place in New Zealand, about 40 or 50 kilometers drive out of Rotorua and heavy pine plantation area. And one of the things we did was walk around the school and, ha and have a look at the facilities and then go and speak to people at the school. So they you know, have you considered putting in shade sails, you know, a bit of sun smart protection. So every time we put up the shade sails and they're pretty expensive, they disappear. And uh, they wondered where they were going. They're all ending up in the pine forest because um, crooks are growing cannabis and um, using it to avoid detection from the air and, and protect the actual crops as well. So every time they'd put up these very expensive shade sails to keep the kids from getting burnt, they'd disappear out into the forest. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that because um, the southern part of the state where we had went, whenever we had went down there, of course, like meth is still an issue there. But I guess um, back before, at least I lived in the state of Oklahoma. Um, apparently it used to be really big for marijuana, like distribution. And apparently it was so big that it was like known outside of the U S like law enforcement there was telling us about how, you know, like they might travel outside of the United States, say like go on a family vacation to Mexico and they would see people with like merchandise, like selling like hats or t-shirts that would like, I forget the name of it now. If I can like think of it, I'll tell you guys um, afterwards. But yeah, like whatever this like name was that they had for the town, like people were selling merchandise, like advertising this 
um, this like marijuana that was like grown in southern Oklahoma. So yeah, it was apparently a really big deal. And just in terms of the the meth, is it um, are they big sort of meth labs or is it um, sort of caravan Breaking Bad style small operations? <laughs> you know, what what's the sort of the sort of the meth industry, if for want of a better term, like there? Yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, prior to 2005, when um, pseudoephedrine and ephedrine, which people predominantly probably know those two drugs associated with um, cold or cough medicine, um, but prior to 2005, um, you know, you could go ahead and buy them over the counter, not need to give your driver's license or, um, or different things like that. But because people um, were using them a lot to produce methamphetamine um, and use, the, use them as precursor chemicals in the lab setups that, that you're talking about, um, they went ahead and enacted a law nationally that said, no, we have to go ahead and put pseudoephedrine and ephedrine behind the counter. Um, and so whenever pseudoephedrine and ephedrine was put behind the counter, in 2005, probably like 2006-ish, that's whenever um, we start to see the Mexican drug cartels start to fill this void that was left by U.S. local manufacture. And so there are still very small labs um, across the United States um, and other countries, because it wasn't just the United States that enacted this kind of legislation. But um, right now, primarily, the meth that is being seized in the United States um, is coming from Mexican drug cartels and is being manufactured in like very large labs um, and lab setups in Mexico and then being imported into the country, the United States. That's what happens when you put Walter White out of business. <laughs> um can we move back to talking a little bit about those redemption stories? Because a few things you said struck me, um, and I think we, it'll, it'll allow us to talk a little bit more about the specifics of the rural environment. So what does that look like in a rural kind of sociocultural context, a redemption story? And, and how does that play into kind of social norms and values and morals and things like that in a rural space, which as we know, um, um, uh, Joe would chastise me for setting up binaries here, but um, which have definitive features that are based very much on the local environment, but but you you can make some general assumptions, for instance, based on ideological difference and voting patterns. So what does that look like in terms of these redemption stories? Yeah, so I think even to kind of connect this to the rural law enforcement interviews that I went on, although, you know, the officers weren't necessarily saying like, I see a redemption narrative in this person, but um, I think that when providers, whether it be law enforcement or even community members, so like if community members believe in a redemption narrative about individuals, like believe that they have redeeming qualities, that they are not, that they are more than just being, say, a drug addict or a convicted felon or whatever the case is, then they may go ahead and vote on or yeah they probably will be more likely to go ahead and vote on legislation say for treatment options for services 
welcome those sorts of things into their communities instead of only having a punitive idea and believing that like these people aren't more than just their conviction or they aren't more than just being, you know, a hillbilly drug addict who isn't going to amount to anything. And I think the officers that we spoke to would kind of even, because a lot of the times they lived in the communities that they were policing. And so, you know, um, we had one officer that talked about like, whenever he ultimately had to leave the community that he was policing because it got to the point that he had already like policed all of the people in the community. And he was like starting to even arrest family members. And he was just like, I couldn't do it anymore. Like that was like heartbreaking for me. And um, so these officers would kind of talk about like, Yes, understanding that their job was to go ahead and, you know, make arrests and different things like that, but that didn't necessarily make it the easiest job. And so, you know, if there was leeway to go ahead and work with those individuals of being like, look, I'm not going to arrest you this time. Instead, go ahead and get treatment or try to do this as an alternative then they would, but when it would, you know, kind of push over that threshold of like, I can't look away anymore. And like, we need to take action because you're a harm, not only to yourself, but also to the community at large, then they would obviously go ahead and do their job. So yeah, I think with my dissertation, that's something that I really want to go ahead and and examine more and see, especially in rural places, how can we, you know, work on bettering that. Yeah, and, and implementing some of those diversion schemes, you know, recognising that, um, particularly if that legislation is not being um, uh, implemented in the spirit in which it was voted upon, then it becomes an, uh, it becomes incumbent on those individual police officers or law enforcement officers to exercise their discretion and try to do something for the good of their own community, injecting a little bit of their own moral judgment, I guess. Yeah, and even, I mean, the officers that we spoke to, um, especially before necessarily 780 and 781 were passed, they expressed, it's not that we don't want this legislation to be passed, but the legislation was actually wrote with um, no amounts listed. And so it was kind of like a blanket, like, we're going to go ahead and um, decriminalize drugs or, you know, take these felonies down to misdemeanors, but it didn't have amounts listed. And so it wasn't until it was passed that they go ahead and say, okay, now we're saying 18 grams of methamphetamine or 19 grams of methamphetamine you can carry. And the officers were like, whoa, like that's way past personal use. Like that's trafficking. Like Mm. why like that's what we have an issue with is really the amount not the philosophy of going ahead and you know taking down some of these you know amounts from felony to misdemeanors and reinvesting resources into the community like we would like that that would make our job easier especially in rural law enforcement you know they were like I'm everything I'm the person who responds to take nuisance dogs away and also be therapists and also be, you know, mental health providers. And like, that would actually help make my job easier. But at the same time, it's like that amount that I'm really having an issue with. Yeah. And overarching above all of that is the fact that there's a pipeline of supply coming in from the cartels in Mexico. So, 
you know, locking up some low level dealers with whether it's 15 or 17 or 20 grams, mm. um, it's all redundant because somebody else will just um, fill, that, fill that place immediately. Even if they're, I, I presume, if they're, even if they're being brought in from interstate in order to keep this, um, keep the, um, uh, manage the demand. Yeah, and I think that one thing that the law enforcement officers, um, and, and I think that it was really because of where, um, so I talked about in the elevator talk that Oklahoma is kind of situated in the United States, kind of like right in the middle. And so we have two of the major highways that go, you know, north and south from Mexico to Canada. And then we also have the highway that goes, you know, west and east. Um, we're kind of at that, that, that nice sort of intersection. And so especially where we're located, we're seeing violence related to the drug industry and the drug, um, the drug crime that is in our, in our communities. And so that's a lot different than if we were just, you know, picking up small amounts of drugs and it really wasn't necessarily hurting anyone. But now we have this association of cartel violence with it. Like, I mean, by no means is it, you know, the cartel violence level of what Mexico is currently seeing, but um, there is an associated violence with that. Yeah. And it's not by accident that um, uh, the drug business is concentrated in certain places like that intersection. There's, I know there's examples in my state of Victoria where there's one town in particular where the highways intersect between Victoria, New South Wales and South Australia and outlaw motorcycle gangs are um, preeminent there. Uh, and it's because they've got, it's, it's a business model. You know, they've got the logistics yeah. and they, they know yeah. that they can get yeah. things from one part Just, of the country yeah. to another. Yeah, it's, it yeah. really is yeah. big business. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and even the, um, I mean, even communities that we would, we would go through, like we also saw the prevalence of, um, you know, organized motorcycle um, gangs, if you, you know, however you want to go ahead and refer to them as, we also saw their prevalence in this community. So it's like, we have motorcycle gangs, we also have, you know, Crips and Bloods, and then we also have Mexican, you know, drug cartels in these communities. Like, yes, they're not super, you know, prevalent maybe as you would have in an urban area but for a small town that can have a huge impact um one of the cities that we had went to that um i was familiar with before we did our studies they talked about how a drug deal had gone bad and it resulted in the rival gang bringing um machine guns to the town and just shooting up the uh gang members mother's house like i mean to law enforcement you know it was unprovoked because they didn't have any knowledge of this drug deal gone bad but now they're having to deal with you know drive-by shootings in a small town of less than 50 50, people yeah so that that all that we've just talked about for the past few minutes i think makes your point very well that uh example you gave of that police officer that is uh, probably quite liberal on drugs and drug use and and how to treat drugs but when it crosses that threshold into what they perceive as trafficking then it kind of challenges those beliefs because they see the kind of on costs and damages there and so it's uh, at what point uh, um um is that shift made so yeah, it's really interesting and then compounded with the kind of characteristics of rural spaces Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, 
we even had, um, you know, I was listening to your, um, your interview with Jessica Peterson, and it was really interesting to hear her talk about how, um, like once you built this rapport with them, how they would even um, go ahead and, and give you more information. I think Dr. Shukla, myself, and our research team was completely comprised of women. Mm. And I honestly think that that helped us yeah. get more information from them than what they would have given like male researchers. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had officers feeling comfortable enough to tell us about how like, their ex-wives were currently struggling with addiction and that made them have compassion for the drug users in their community. Or, you know, a rural officer had talked about how his brother was um, an addict and I think he had passed away. And so, you know, it's those sorts of things, especially in rural communities where I feel like everyone that I know from Oklahoma is touched in some way or knows of someone who has been impacted by drug use or drug abuse. And that really, um, that's hard to kind of separate of being like, well, I don't care about this issue when everyone that you know, or seemingly a lot of people that you know, um, is being hurt and harmed by it. An interesting thing is the um, the uh, uh, again the the root source of the the drugs that are coming into communities like those rural communities in Oklahoma coming in from Mexico and uh, I know you saw the uh, the video the the half an hour clip and we might share this on the on the podcast so others can see it but it was from the ABC Australian ABC's um, foreign correspondent program and we're looking at one particular uh, drug cartel and what I thought was particularly interesting was uh, the interview with a or the um, observations of a 13-year-old boy uh, when he was asked uh, what did he feel about all the killing. He said, well, if there were no drugs, uh, there would be no killing, would there? And then they, they pan across to a, uh, an older person, perhaps his father or a relative, and uh, when asked, um, you know, why, do you, uh, why do you involve the 13-year-olds? Because the younger they are, the more they learn. <laughs> it's a really a sort of sad thing, and it just shows that it's intergenerational and there is, and we might get onto corruption in, in the United States, but certainly the corruption there in, yeah. in, uh, in Mexico. Yeah, and it was, it was really interesting because even in the visits that we would go to, like they would talk about like intergenerational in terms of like, I've arrested the grandfather, the father, and now I'm picking up the kids and yeah. possibly even the, the grandkids. Like I've arrested all of them. Like I know this family very well. Like they all, you know, reside in my community. Some of them are still currently incarcerated. Um, and then you also see that as well of like, they weren't necessarily using, but you know, they could have been trafficking or they could have been, you know, um, selling or manufacturing. So yeah, you definitely see that intergenerational um, impact as well in the rural areas. So very much a learned behavior. Yeah. and uh, and passed down through generations. It becomes almost a way of life, I guess. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just going back to what you're speaking about with the kind of police officer perceptions and stuff, I think it really emphasizes as well the difference between a, which all of us have, I guess, in, in, our, in our respective work environments, but especially police, the difference between a bit of a personal opinion and a personal ideology and a personal perception and personal experiences versus... Or 
diversity um, and the conflicts that can kind of come between the two. I've seen it here kind of over and over again on, on Q&A, Alistair, which is a popular um, kind of, I don't know what you call it, talk show in Australia, um, where when the police are on talking about drugs or something like that, they just really repeat the kind of corporate line. And you can tell you're not speaking to an individual because I guess you can't speak to an individual at that point. You're speaking with a representative of a particular police group. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. You bring how those tensions come to the fore, but then they're even more accentuated in a rural space where people know each other a little bit better and have those more, I guess, familial and friendly relationships. Yeah. I mean, the, it was really funny because when step 780 and 781 were being voted on and even leading up to the votes and we were going to these agencies, we would talk about, oh, the only advertisement that we've seen on TV has, or campaigns that we've seen on TV has been supporting 780. Like if this is how police feel, like <laughs> why aren't we seeing anything? Yeah. And they actually told us that like the police union would yeah. not go ahead and put out a campaign. And so um, one of the officers, uh, I think he was a, a sheriff, he had said, you know, I had wanted to go ahead and, and put out campaigns, but I was told that I would have to do it out of like my own personal funds and kind of um, do it that way. Yeah. And again, are you willing to do that if... Um, what I've been told is I've been told that many of the rural areas actually voted no for the legislation and that it was those bigger urban areas like Oklahoma City and Tulsa that actually carried the yes votes and that ultimately ended up getting it voted. And so they were like, if I know that my community is going to say no, but ultimately yeah. it's going to get passed, like, why would I want to go ahead and spend all this money? <laughs> yeah. And you need the support of your community as well when you're police. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, just something that struck me when you did start to talk about those redemption stories a little bit as well, is a lot of this overlaps, um, which you may be interested for your own research with the literature on punitiveness and people's perceptions on punishment and basically what to do with people who break the law. And a lot of that has to do with their perceptions of redemption, i.e. whether or not they judge that the person has the capacity to be redeemed. If so, um, if that kind of moral judgment is made, i.e., they committed the crime because of this sociological factor, not they committed the crime because they're a terrible, bad person. Uh, that very much shapes their capacity to, um, or willingness to, um, I guess, characterize the person with, a, with a, an ability to, to redeem themselves. Um, and then therefore that influences their decision on whether you know, they should go to prison for a very long time or if we should focus rehabilitative resources on them. So it's really interesting that overlap there generally um, with the more specific example of drug use. You know, if people see a capacity, uh, uh, if they see the individual and the actions of the individual as I guess more broader than just good or bad, you know, shades of gray, it very much shapes their responses to these types of issues. Yeah, and I think that that kind of also made me more interested in pursuing this as a dissertation topic, given, you know, that we are seeing um, pushes for, you know, marijuana to be, you know, recreational and now uh, medicinal and in states and also, you know, people being released from prisons in, you know, good, great numbers, um, you know, who may be low level drug offenders. And I think that that's great but then again like how great is that if you're taking them back to communities that still don't go ahead and have resources yeah. for them um or you know or, or for them to go ahead and access and so 
I know here in West Virginia, um, we created some um, harm reduction strategies. So, you know, like syringe, um, people could go ahead and do needle exchanges. And um, I think it was going on for a couple months. And then all of a sudden, like it got shut down and they were like, no, 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 like you can't go ahead and like exchange your needles anymore. And so it's just like, well, so do you believe that people <laughs> are redeemable or do you not believe that people are redeemable? Because, you know, when you do go ahead and say, that we're going to do these harm reduction strategies, but then you're wanting to take away those things. Like that's going in opposition of what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I know in my local area, a number of years ago, again, um, there, there, there is, was and still is a needle exchange. In fact, it was so successful. They were gathering more needles, more syringes each year than they're actually, um, they were giving out. Wow. Um, but the, there was always a groundswell and particularly around local government election time from, candidates would say oh we've got to get rid of them we don't want the riffraff in the in the streets um but then they'll and uh, it should be put out in some industrial area yeah NIMBY. yeah yeah um, and, and neglecting to think well how are the people actually going to get there and then they'll turn around and complain oh well there's needles on the street you know i almost stepped on one you know so so it's, you've got to do something about it but nothing that's going to have an impact on me and my belief system and yeah it just becomes problematic for decision makers too sort of juggling those that mixture of views and trying to convince people of the evidence as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been interesting in, in Canada. I mean, I'm no uh, extreme expert, but I found it very interesting. The, the development of safe injecting sites specifically, uh, I forget when it was uh, sometime between 2012 and 2015 when the Harper government was in, they tried to shut down insight, which was the first, I think safe injection site in Vancouver and very successful. It had a bunch of research out behind it, um, you know, showed a bunch of very, very positive outcomes in terms of crime reduction, safety, deaths, all these types of things. The government tried to shut it down. The Supreme court ruled against them and it was very successful. And that was a bit of a watershed moment. So what you saw actually was um, I guess what you'd call uh, doing good by stealth. So you saw a lot of these public health initiatives pop up in a local area, but n- you know, it wasn't publicized and it wasn't talked about. It just happened overnight. And so it was almost overnight. You had all these safe injection sites because they kind of had the example and the legal authority, which was pretty gray before it to now do it. And so you didn't have to combat that political element, which, you know, of course, politicians are very afraid of touching that not in my backyard syndrome and those issues that come. And they're just there. Obviously, it came with some some conflict and issues, but the way in which they, I guess, kind of went around the democratic process, for lack of a better word, um, which in these moral um, fear-based issues uh, that bring into account issues of, you know, that people really care about in in. <laughs> in urban areas like the prices of their homes and things like that. Um, it's, it's moving around those political conversations, not having to. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be really interesting. I've heard of a couple different initiatives. I haven't like <clears throat> read into them to see if they're still like surviving post pandemic, but I know in one of the communities um, that I had read an article about how their local um one of the local organizations was actually saying like, we understand that you may not be able to come to us. And so like, we're going to come to you. And so they actually had like vans and different transportation that like, if you called them up and you were like, I'm on the corner of first street and you know, whatever, um, then they would go ahead and come to you. And you know, like, is it that we can give you, do you need needles? Like, do you need Tylenol? Like, what is it that we can go ahead 
and help you. And they would actually go ahead and try to do those initiatives. And so I thought that that was incredible because I've never heard of that <laughs> before. Yeah. But like also, especially whenever you are in rural areas where you know that people are going to have issues with transportation, people are going to have issues with internet access, people are going to have issues with public transportation. Like those are things that you have to consider, it, especially if you want the overdose deaths in your county to go down or, you know, you want the cr drug related crime in your city to go down. Like these are things that you have to consider of you can go ahead and put legislation in, but if you're also not following that up actively with things like this, then how well is that actually going to do to accomplish what goals you had set out with that legislation? Yeah, if the same old, same old's not working, then why would you keep on doing the same thing? It's the first sign of madness, isn't it? <laughs> keep repeating yeah. your mistakes. Just uh, when you're telling me about the uh, the deliveries, <laughs> it's like Uber Health, isn't it? <laughs> Uber Community yeah. Care. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you did the elevator presentation, and for those uh, listening and watching, this is um, uh, uh, coordinated by the International Society for the Study of Rural Crime, is ISROC or ISSRC, and Daddy L did a did a presentation there. And one of the things that uh, you mentioned was some of the sort of levels of corruption within some of the law enforcement. I wonder whether you could just uh, illustrate that with uh, an example or two. Yeah, so in my presentation, I had talked about how one of the things that I don't think any of us on the research team assumed that we would stumble upon was corruption. You know, in our minds, we were like, they're just going to tell us that meth is probably their main issue. And yeah. And move on. Um, or, you know, like drug related crimes were, you know, kind of the, the, um, the crime that they were dealing with. But in one instance, we came to, um, <laughs> I'm laughing because like remembering this now, it's just like, I don't think that three women who like literally drove like two, two and a half hours we're in the middle of nowhere. I don't even know if we actually had cell service and we're, we get there and the chief takes us into a room and the mayor is also there. And we're just like, okay, this is kind of very bizarre. Like, <laughs> what are we doing? Like, we only thought that we were going to talk to the chief, but it also wasn't uncommon for us to show up to interviews and then be like, oh, and like also talk to so-and-so and hear so-and-so and, -so and yeah. like do extended interviews. But we ended up talking, I think it was for like an hour and a half with the chief and the mayor before we even then sat down to have a whole different conversation with the chief. And one of the things that they were talking about was in this um, small agency, they both had not been born and raised in that town. So they had kind of came to it um, in the last couple years. Um, and what they had discovered was that a lot of the city council members were um, involved in the local drug trade of some sense. And so um, whenever they would go ahead and say, arrest John Smith, who maybe had been a family member or a friend of a person on the, the council, they would take them to the sheriff's office, which was just down the road, maybe 10, 15 miles. And by the time that they drove back to town, the 10 or 15 miles, that person would already be bailed out of 
of the, sh of the um, sheriff's office or of the jail. And so they really felt that they were like struggling to do anything in their community to combat crime, to combat drugs, to just even do their jobs because anywhere that they looked, um, they were going ahead and like facing some sort of um, hostility. Um, one of my favorite lines from them in the interview process was that they wake up every morning and they put their um, machine gun on their back because they don't know like what they're going to be facing from their community members. Like they legitimately expressed um, their life being in danger and that they were like trying to reach out to law enforcement agencies above them at the state and the federal level to get help because they were like scared of the intimidation process that they were facing in their local community. Um, so yeah, that was like one instance where we just like, <laughs> we're not prepared for that. Like we left the interview and we were just like whispering back to the car and we were like, we're not going to say anything until like we get to the next town. And we legitimately didn't say anything like in the car to one another, because like we were just like, we're so creeped out by like what we just heard. Like the mayor and the, the mayor and the chief actually like had, we're living in RVs like next to one another um, in like kind of like a plot of land because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. And I can tell you that I've, um, I still kept in contact with the chief and I know that he's no longer like at that jurisdiction. So yeah, it was it really must crazy. Make it, it must make it incredibly difficult for recruitment and retention of, uh, of police officers in those communities. If, yeah. if you it think that you have, to live, area. you have to, you have to live with the machine gun in close proximity to the police station because you're fearful. Yeah. yeah he was saying that they would actually fly drones like, they had drones that would follow both him and the mayor and also their like wives and children around. So they were just like, we don't know like what is going to happen to us. Yeah. We speak a lot about outsiders when it comes to offenders in rural communities, but this is really interesting insight into law enforcement as outsiders who don't come from the particular uh, area might not know the cultural geography might not you know be seen as um, included insiders despite their role as law enforcement but actually are actively um, challenged and, and uh, uh, set out against you know based on their status as outsider and based on not kind of going along with the socially organized norms that that perhaps are conducive to criminal offending and criminal behavior yeah and another um, another example of corruption that we again kind of stumbled upon was we um, went to this community and the officer um, took us around in um, in his squad car and he had took us to this um, like abandoned strip club I don't know like how else to describe that um, or if there's like another term for a strip club but he had taken us to the strip club that was no longer operational and he had said, um, when it had been in operational years before, what had actually happened is him and his um, jurisdiction were trying to stop activity, like criminal activity that was going on in like the shed that was attached to the strip club or kind of like a, like another space of the strip club. And um, 
what ended up happening was the owners of the strip club actually had friends in the neighboring jurisdiction. And so they would go ahead and try to have those friends like notify them if like there was going to be a raid or something like that. And um, once law enforcement found it out, then they were like, okay, well, you know, now we have to go ahead and kind of find ways to have raids without necessarily like using communications that, you know, they may be tipped off by. And it ultimately resulted in the landowners taking their land and being added to the jurisdiction of the neighboring county. So like the land was actually annexed to the next jurisdiction, just so law enforcement could not stop criminal activity on the premises. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And so again, things that you don't really think that you're going to stumble upon when you're going to talk to rural law enforcement. But that really speaks to the dynamics of small town policing in the United States. And, you know, Canada, for instance, has, like the United States, many different police forces, but I don't think on the level of devolvement of power that the U.S. has, like where you really have local police. Um, And Australia being here, it's so much different. I mean, the New South Wales police is one of the largest police forces in the world, and and it's just a state-based police organization. You know, so in very rural spaces, it's the New South Wales police. And so I wonder if that helps the history of the New South Wales Police is not all that uh, colorful or great. Um, it's somewhat colorful on these issues as well. So I'm not saying that it that it entirely mitigates any sort of corruption, but I wonder what that role has to play. That uh, because you speak to those um, aspects of local dynamics and relationships, and maybe even intergenerational police families and things like that 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 are really bound to the community. And so um, I don't know if corruption is even always the best word. It is corruption, obviously, when it when it comes to this stage. But like almost like um, such a commitment and such a deep level of attachment to these communities that you, you do police the law in a different way because of that. And uh, it's fascinating at that local level to think about how that, that plays out at the, at the individual level. Yeah, definitely. I don't, sometimes I think back to those law enforcement interviews and I'm just like, I don't know how they do it. Like, I don't, like you literally have to go to your work every day, especially in those, those last two communities that I just said, and like, know that your community members are actively working against you. Like you said earlier, like, it's so important to know that you have trust in your community and like your community members don't really trust you. If anything, like they're actually working against you. Yeah. I've seen it a couple of different ways. Like I talked to some officers up here that Definitely live outside the city center for obvious reasons, the city center. I wouldn't call it the city center. Definitely live outside the <laughs> where the stores are uh, uh, for a reason. Uh, but whenever I meet them in town, for instance, like we'll be having a coffee and every person who walks by says hi or comes to them with a problem or talks to them or knows them. Yeah. So it's almost like they're over-included in everyone's business. So um, yeah, some of the things I've experienced have not necessarily been inclusion, but almost just as difficult when it comes to pressure and having to be on the clock, I guess, 24 seven as the law enforcement officer, because everyone knows you and because you've grown up speaking to that, that I do know 
officers in more urban environments, uh, not, not necessarily rural, that purposely live about five cities, or I guess in your case, five counties over and commute into work because, you know, they were so sick of seeing the people that they arrested the night before and, and being very uncomfortable when they were out with their daughter or their son or their family and, and you know, that, that dynamic there. Mm-hmm. And so they purposely move away. And I remember one describing it, it was like, oh, I just wouldn't go east of this, this area, you know, because that's when I start running in people. So I always went west, you know, if we had to do a family outing, if we had to go shopping or, and I just found that yeah. so interesting the way that, that, that the nature of policing often requires ones to make, you know, significant changes in their personal lives because of the job that they do. Yeah. And I think it would also, I think it would also be interesting, um, kind of like related to that, like, as we're talking about just like services in rural communities, like I think of, Thankfully, when I was a sexual assault advocate, I, you know, was in a bigger city, but even like you ran the risk of, you know, being out and about. And like, if someone who you had just, you know, help had like recognized you, like I know many advocates who have like ran into survivors that they've helped before. And it's just like, okay, well, you know, like we, how do you go ahead yeah, and like acknowledge no, you, but yeah, like yeah. also not like not go ahead and like try to like give anything away. And like, yeah, I think yeah, that that yeah. is kind of even like elevated to a whole different level when you do live in a rural community where, you know, you're very bound to, you know, run into them yeah. compared to like living in an urban area where, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people there. So everybody knows everybody and there's almost a sort of self-enforced kind of silence, isn't there? (laughs) There's a a moment of recognition, but okay, nobody's going to say anything because that was then and it's now. (laughs) And I I know what you mean about the awkwardness too, because this is obviously nothing to do with sexual assault surviving. So that, 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 that would be obviously much more accentuated, but I ran into the, 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 the nurse who birthed my son the, the day, the day after. And it was like, well, how do you broach this? I just spent 48 hours with right. in a room and like, you know, are we friends now? Or, you know, now I see right. them all the time and everywhere. Or I run into my doctor, you know, um, actually he was there, I had the house next to me for sale and I see him pull up and, you know, go look at the house. I'm like, oh, this is, how do you, how do you broach? He's, it's a You're like, you can't live here. It's a formal relationship we have, you know, is when does it become like, a bit informal and yeah so i really i've i've learned to to um definitely be careful about relationships and friendships in a smaller town you know because you will see those people all the time you're quite likely to bump into the vice chancellor on a saturday (laughs) afternoon at the supermarket exactly exactly so in a regional uh, place yeah it's amazing well um Alistair, did you have any burning questions that, that you think we've left off around policing or any of those issues? No, I don't think so. We've covered a bit of ground over the hour. That's yeah, good. I think so. Danielle, did you have anything that you kind of wanted to add or, or something to talk about to close out? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I can give both of you, um, Alistair, if you didn't keep them, um, I can give you both access to um, or PDFs of the global methamphetamine article that I published, and then also the rural law enforcement article um, that I published. And I will say, I wasn't quite sure where we were going to go um, in this interview. So last night I was like reading, reading the latest <laughs> world drug report from the United Nations. And I was like, I was like, is this still, I was like, is this still going on? And, um, and I was really interested to see that, you know, 
kind of the things that we had talked about in both of those articles, um, you know, were still going on today. And so I think that, you know, it's kind of, um, for me, taking up this idea of drug research, I've really seen, again, like how I talked about everyone back home in Oklahoma seems to be touched by, you know, drug abuse, whether it's, you know, someone directly or, you know, someone indirectly, like the foster children that my family took in as a foster family, every single one of them had a parent that had been using drugs and that's why they were in the foster care system. And so I think what makes me more, um, more willing to take up this cause and why I wish that there were more focus on it is especially looking at it globally and seeing how now we are seeing organized crime networks tied to it. Like that means that there's an increase in violence associated with it. And that's what makes me nervous is, you know, to see how that little boy can be like, I'm going to go ahead and take a life because like, I have to take a life. Like, we may not see that violence to that degree, you know, in Australia or in America, um, especially in rural areas. But I think that if it continues, um, you know, the way that it's going, it's not impossible to think that we may not see it in some, some degree or some variation, even in rural communities. And so that's kind of yeah. why I'm passionate about it. Yeah. And even on top of the violence, there's also just simply the deaths, you know, when, when mm-hmm. those support systems are in place, when those healthcare systems are absent from rural spaces. I mean, look at the literature on opioid overdose. Uh, more people die uh, in rural spaces than urban spaces, and the reasons why are very obvious. Um, and so death and violence uh, definitely follows in the wake if, if, if it's not addressed appropriately. We've considered this from uh, rural in a U.S. context, but of course, and I'm reflecting back on that foreign correspondent uh, video, there's the rural over in Mexico too. Long winding dirt roads with, uh, by necessity, a whole heap of security measures put in place. And I think they're flying drones over to make sure that law enforcement aren't coming to have the bribe ready for when they do. And just reflecting on that, that, I highly encourage people to look at it, uh, this little um, um, story. And the 13-year-old who's desperately keen to become a vet, but it's got this air of recognition that I'm just going to become a, uh, yeah. a, a drug manufacturer and I'm just going to have to kill people. Life is predetermined. Where is the story? Where can listeners find it? Uh, we'll put up a link. It's uh, yeah, up, I'll put the, it up on the YouTube. The definitely. ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and it's a foreign, foreign correspondent um, article okay, uh, item. Yeah. Um, and Danielle, if you send through the links of those papers, I can attach them to the YouTube so people can click on the links of your papers and follow them through. Um, Perfect. I guess so, I just have one, one last question, if we can touch on one more thing uh, that I've been curious about going back to the beginning on these redemption stories. What's your hypothesis kind of like, what's their role? Do you think, what are you, what are you looking for in that regard? Um, so I hypothesize if I had to, you know, go ahead and make one. Um, I'm thinking that when, and this kind of like seems kind of like a duh thing, (laughs) I guess that wasn't really like academic, like duh. Um, But I'm thinking that when people do believe that others are redeemable, that that's when you're going to see more services for them, more treatment for them, more belief in rehabilitation for them. 
And not only for them, but for others in your community. Like, I think that, and, and why I'm interested in that is, you know, when we do have states or federal governments that they may not be getting as much money back into those communities, Hmm. what can those communities do on a grassroots level to still go ahead and promote betterness in their communities not only for those individuals that might need them but for the generations to come because we do know that drugs are not just a victimless crime it affects everyone and um and you know just because it may you may not see and necessarily helping one person or that person may go ahead and relapse like that doesn't mean that it's not helping 10 other people by having a needle exchange in that community and so I guess that's kind of what I'm believing that I'm going to see is when you do find communities and individuals that do hold that redemption belief that there will be, you know, a support system for that individual, yeah. whether that be at the community level or their friends and their family. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder about the role of redemption stories in public health messaging in terms of mm-hmm. engendering and, 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 and growing political support for public health strategies towards drug use. You see it in the punitiveness literature again, that when people are provided with context, you know, instead of saying, Johnny, you know, murdered a person. If you say, you know, Johnny grew up in this environment, Johnny was abused, Johnny had this, this is what happened. Uh, what do you think we should do with Johnny? The, the, the response changes dramatically because you have the context to allow yourself, I think, to, to, to allow for and open up to concepts of redemption. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both for having me. And, you know, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm pleased to be here. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Um, like I said, it's, it's best to, uh, wing these conversations off often because they go in such fascinating, interesting directions. And I mean, the ground we've covered in an hour is absolutely, you know, really interesting. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you for taking the time at 7 PM. Our, Wednesday, I think it is. Our Wednesday is just starting and your Tuesday is just ending. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. And uh, we will get you the recording. This will be up on YouTube in the video format, but also Spotify and Apple. Um, Yeah. So thanks again. Really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.